Welcome back to the Demanding Value Podcast, where we dissect both sides of the buyer-seller value equation so everybody wins. The last episode, we had Mina Medler, Vice President of Strategic Supplier Engagement for Premier, where we talked all things value-based care, risk-share agreements, to make sure that there's a true partnership between the end user and the supplier. So. She gave us so much great information that I wanted to reach out with a vendor that has actually successfully engaged in value-based agreements, and that person is John Maverick. John is the Director of National Accounts for Teleflex Medical, a $20 billion healthcare manufacturing company that has successfully implemented value-based agreements consistently with the right customers. And that's what I wanted to dive into, into with him. How do you understand who's ready for a value-based agreement? What are the do's and don'ts? How do you make them work? What are the watchouts? How do you track the data? How do you put the legalese together? So we just we we went into all of that, and John was just a pleasure to talk to, a great guy. So with that, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with John Maverick. Let me just do a brief introduction for you, and then you can kind of fill in any gaps that I missed. So. John, you are the National Accounts Director for Teleflex, and you've been doing that for nine years. Prior to that, you were with Bard for nine years, leading sales teams. So um, you have a vast amount of experience in the medical device, healthcare sales world, selling to hospitals your entire career. And Teleflex is a massive company. So $20 billion market cap. I looked yesterday, the stock price was at $440 a share, which increased 173% over the last five years. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. And, uh, and Teleflex is all over the hospital in anesthesia, ER, interventional cardiology and radiology, interventional urology, respiratory, surgical, urology, vascular access. I mean, like, oh my God, like they're, they're everywhere. So you really are the perfect person for me to talk to about value-based care because you offer value throughout the entire hospital. So it, it's truly amazing. And, and one point that I want to make out right on Teleflex's website are these three statistics that say 90% of hospitalized patients receive some sort of vascular access device, number one. Number two, 768 hospitals were penalized in 2017 due to poor performance related to hospital-acquired conditions. And then three, penalties related to those conditions scores totaled approximately $364 million. So Teleflex is directly focused on avoiding problems that cost money, right? And of course, for clinical impact. So um, sorry for the very, very long introduction there, but you're, you're up to some really impressive stuff. And I want the audience to understand who you are and, and the space you're operating in. So thanks for being here. You got it. And I appreciate being on this. This is an area that uh, the best word to suggest it is passion for me. And I know for several folks that are in the vascular division, uh, it fundamentally, it started out of a need because we were facing a big dominant market share leader. Uh, we're second in a market that's 98% led by the market share leader. And they're very, and they created the actual market. They, they were the ones that went out and developed the actual clinicians that have now started putting these types of products in in the vascular space. So we needed a different tool in our, our tool bag in addition to all the things that you typically do with your sales teams. And uh, it and I, I the thing that I want to impart upon the audience is don't let this seem too complicated. Don't 
uh, don't get overwhelmed with how do we create something like this? We literally sat down in a conference room with the VP of sales and the president of the company, the division at the time, and we worked it out on a piece of paper really? and then gave it to the legal department. <clears throat> so, you know, don't, uh, one of my favorite vice presidents in the past always used to say to me when I was early in my career, the difference between me and a lot of other people is I try it. <laughs> and I think there's a lot to be said for that, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, too absolutely. often we get paralyzed with development. And, and I know we all operate in this space in a very legal, regulatory environment. And it's important uh, that we're protecting our shareholders and we're doing the right things. But just figure out how to operate within the confines of that and do it. Yeah. Um, so that was how it started. And it very simply was we sat down and we literally whiteboarded it out and wrote it on a piece of paper and handed it off to the lawyers and said, I love Can it. Can you help us? So back in those days, uh, the word risk sharing was being bounced around all over the market. Everybody, everywhere you went, every conference you went to, you know, every, every, every single one of the magazines had an article about risk sharing in it. Yeah. And what we soon found out was that the market really didn't understand what that was, really. Uh, and we went out and started talking risk sharing, risk sharing, risk sharing. And we soon understood that we weren't really risk sharing in the sense that pay, it's really more of a payer model in the risk sharing world, right? We're, we weren't going to be remunerated for the risk that we were able to drop, right? Uh, so we changed the terminology to risk mitigation. So we went in saying, we're going to drop your risk with our program, with our product. And the benefit of it will be this. Um, and that seemed to work a little bit better. But also, as you mentioned, the statistics, uh, being in the vascular space, we benefit from the, uh, the fact that the government is involved in this now. They are requiring hospitals to track these, uh, these uh, hospital-acquired infections, and they're penalizing for it. Uh, the next thing that we learned was that you can't, you don't want to create a program around a soft cost. A lot of people like to get into the soft things like length of stay. It needs to be something that the hospital can put an actual number to. Um, and in that uh, learning lesson, what we found was we would go in and start talking about these hospital acquired infections. Number one, the hospital wasn't that up to speed on that program to begin with. You'd be surprised, even meeting with the C-level folks. They were yeah. just getting into it. They just started to understand it. Um, they hadn't been penalized yet when we started. They, the first penalties hadn't been handed down. And the other thing was that we soon learned is that they not always understood what it actually cost them, the actual infection, the actual problem. It might not be an infection for some of your listeners. It could be other different things that it affects on the outcome side. But they didn't understand the actual dollar value how much does this cost your hospital when this happens? So we had to sit down with finance people and they would put a pencil to it and they actually would come up with a number. And we always tried to use their numbers, not our numbers, even though there's market statistics and lots of surveys and you can read the different articles on whatever your outcome is, you'll find one that tells you it costs this much, but we always let them use their number because then again, it's building trust in the model because this was a new idea. Nobody walked in, nobody in our space in particular had walked in and said, we're gonna guarantee you a certain kind of an outcome if you use this product. And if not, here's what here's the reward for that. Yeah. And so we, we learned very quickly, they don't know. And you have to start that. 
you have to get them to identify it so that they can understand their own pain. Yeah. Once that had happened, uh, the next thing that we ran into, and this is the oldest lesson in sales school, if you don't have the clinical support for the idea, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, that these types of programs are not supply chain programs. If you go to supply chain and you start talking to the supply chain people about, I'm going to save you $350,000 to the bottom line, hard dollars, but you're going to pay more for the supply. It's a no starter. Yeah, they won't yeah. even take it to the value analysis committee. They don't want to hear that. Right. Uh, it's, so it's not something you can start in supply chain. You have to have the old, everybody knows it in device. You've got to have the clinical champions that are willing to try it and fight for it. Then you can bring the value of the total program to the hospital. And that was a challenge because now you're linking together supply chain with cl clinical outcomes. They don't really care. They care but they don't get incentivized on clinical outcomes, at least that many years ago. And it's still mostly true today. They're incentivized on reducing price, right? Mm -hmm. Saving supply chain money. And then you're pulling in clinical folks that don't understand the business of it. And you're trying to link the two together. And especially when you're up against a market leader, even with a great program like this, it's a battle, but you have to put the two together. Yeah. And since that time, the nomenclature has evolved to value-based or performance-based contracting. Okay. And that's really a more accurate description of what we do. Uh, we've done two different types of programs. One is we'll go in and we'll take a look at what their outcome is, if they're, their baseline outcome. Uh, for instance, a number of infections. Yep. And we'll measure against that base and tell them, and we've done this, uh, we did this for a big system, thinking of one out on the East Coast, we'll guarantee you that we're gonna reduce your infections to blank, a certain number. And for every infection we don't get you to, we owe you some money back because you, you had to pay for that infection. So there was a guarantee for them to get to a certain number. The other way we've done it is we've simply gone in and said, look, what is your, what's your baseline infection rate? And these are for the accounts that are not that skilled at knowing what they need to know uh we will guarantee we'll just what we'll do is match the price on the product that you're currently using so you have really no financial risk yeah. the risk is time it's a time investment which is costly time costs money but we will guarantee that no matter what the outcome is at the end of this trial if you will we're going to rebate you back the money that you spent on our supply over the current supply cost you have we had success with that on an account. I think of one out on the West Coast, a big system. Now, now John, is that was that dependent on the the lowering of, of infection rates, or you just said we're going to eliminate the increase in cost flat out? The, the latter. So we just make it very simple and say we're going to eliminate the cost of the supply. Essentially, you're trying it for your time. Got it. So you're not going to spend any more. Supply chain likes that because it's not an increase in their cost unless they buy start buying the product afterwards. Uh, forever. And then uh, the clinicians like it because they get to do the trial and it's simple. So it's just a very easy way to go in and say, try it. Financial risk is out and we know you're going to get a good outcome. We do track those outcomes. We'll get that in a second along the way. So those are the two basic types of programs that we've done. And it's evolved from the term risk sharing to performance or value-based contracting. 
And the fundamentals of it are, again, you've got to link together your clinical champion, very important. And the account must know the pain. They must understand the cost of the pain to them. And it cannot be soft cost. They don't, the soft costs are, are no-goes. Yeah. Everybody likes to say, you know, I dropped three days of stay off of your, your patient stay. Well, how do you really know that, right? Yeah. So we, we happen to be blessed in the fact that we're operating in our space in a place where it is tracked. They are required to track that outcome. They're required yeah. to report it to the government. So any of you out there listening that have that luxury of my technology directly impacts something they are tracking, you've got to go for it because a big part of your challenge is over with. Yeah. It's already done for you. Um, the next part of it is the, some of the learning lessons that we had was not often there are the accounts that you think really need this that are in the worst shape can handle it. They're in bad shape for a reason. <laughs> okay. Right. They, they might not uh, have the best processes and policies and that's why they're in bad shape. They may not, maybe they don't have the right personnel to uh, drive them to the goal that they need to get to. And you can take a program like this inside there and go for the biggest one and think this is going to be great for us. It's a revenue generator. And, you know, we all have a sales quota when you're in sales. Right. And they just can't handle it. They can't. They're not able to track it well. They don't know what it costs them. They don't have the right policies for use of, the, of a different kind of a product. They don't implement well. Their education's poor. All kinds of different excuses. Uh, but we found often you don't go for the ones that seem to be the ones that need it the most. You look for those that are the most ready. Now, there are some surveys out there you can Google that have been done, readiness surveys on this kind of thing. And it is oftentimes the mid-level hospital that's well run that may not even have a really high problem with your outcome. But even if they reduce one or two or 10 percent, they're, they want to do that yeah. because they're just all about getting that improved outcome. They're about yeah. being efficient, right? So we, that's the thing that we learned early on was doing the type of surveying and questioning and meeting that we needed to have with that account to determine, should we walk away on this one? They're probably not ready to, to even yeah. do a program like this. And that's yeah. hard, right? Because in the sales world, you want to win them all. Oh, yeah. And that's a hard thing to do, but it is absolutely a, a game changer when you when you do that, because then you get so many other learning lessons and accounts that are ready. You can share those with the others. You can teach them. You can link them together. They can speak to each other. Yeah. Um, and so that was a big learning lesson for us, too, was to try to find places that were really ready, that had the right personnel policies, procedures, were well run. Um, they had good analysts. John, is there is there like a litmus test that, you know what, if they have an answer to this question, they're probably ready or vice versa? Yeah, I think I've gotten to the point where I think the litmus test is if they can tell you what it costs them to have that problem, they can tell you the dollar figure. That means they've done their homework. Got it. Because they would have had to track it. They would have had to pull the the issue. They would have had to take it to finance. They would have had to pull the master chart and figure out all the costs. If they know the cost and the number of problems they're having, that's a pretty good uh, sign that they that they know what they're got doing. it. 
Now, in regards to cost, you made a fantastic point a little bit earlier. I just wanted to dig into a little bit that you mentioned that you use their number for cost. So you sit down with finance or their accounting folks to, to understand how are they putting a cost to this. So how do you get to those folks? So a few ways. Uh, one is, um, oddly enough, and the most, the, the most basic way to answer the question is, if you've never literally walked into a finance department in a hospital, all their cards are out front. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I hate to say it'd be that simple. Uh, I know finance isn't typically a department that a lot of us call upon. So there is some uh, uneasiness there, but you can typically go in and their cards literally are sitting in the front of their office. That's number yeah. one. Number two is they'll use in our clinical champions. So we could go to our clinical champion. Uh, in our case, a lot of times it's the infection preventionist in this world. They, they will know who they are. And, and if they're a good hospital, then that person already knows the cost. They've worked it out for you. Yeah. You're not having to go do the homework for them. Uh, but when they haven't done the homework, they usually know who that person is because typically now on these value analysis teams, there's a representative from finance on the value analysis team, uh, a, you know, a director of finance, not usually the CFO, but somebody below that person. And they can, they can connect you with them or they'll get it for themselves because they want to learn it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Do most hospitals have an infection, pre infection preventivist? They do. Is that most right? Do. Okay. Got yep. it. And the new, the newest branch of that, it's, well, it's not really a branch, but it's a, uh, it's becoming more prevalent is quality officers are becoming very, very prevalent. So you're going to have in our world, you're going to have either a quality person and or an infection pensionist. Those will be the folks that are directly assigned with linking their reporting to the government on our particular issue. Got it. So John, so, you know, the sales process, what I'm hearing from you has not changed you're still going to the demanding surgeon or clinician or whoever your champion is. You're making sure that they really wanna get this product in their hands and that they're willing to fight for it. So am I correct that your value-based program, your willingness to assign risk to what you're offering is ammunition for that demanding physician to get it through? The, the program in and of itself will not get it through. It's going to help your demanding physician get it through when they really want it. Absolutely. 100%. Got it. And then when you're doing that and that person is demanding it and they don't know the cost of an infection, you're trying to use maybe some evidence to, to do it. At that point, is that when you're sharpening your pencil with their finance person to say, okay, let's update these numbers. Let's make sure that we're all on the same page with what a cost of an infection is. And now, now you're, what I'm hearing is you're, now you're developing a partnership with them. You're kind of working on a document together. Is that, is that accurate? That is accurate. And that's, you know, it, obviously you're signing a contract with them. So you have to get into that, that level of detail and, and, and research with them. But absolutely, that's when that happens. Got it. Now, John, when, so you're, you're in the world of preventing infections and lowering infection uh, rates. So how do you, in a value-based agreement or a risk share or risk mitigation agreement, attribute the, the infection to the product or not to the product? Because that's a question that comes up all the time. Was it the product? Was it something else? Or maybe you did lower infection and the hospital say, yeah, but that's not really the product that did that. How, did, how does that play itself out? So we, we understand there, there's, uh, in, this, in this area, there is a significant amount of CDC guideline and 
recommendation from various associations like the Infusion Nurses Society, et cetera, that, that lay out uh, the best practices to help reduce these problems. It's not any one thing, and you're absolutely right. We always tell our folks, this is not about a silver bullet. This is about adding an additional tool to your comprehensive program. So the thing we start with is in our diligence, have they already implemented the other things? You know, for in our world, have they implemented the bundle, for example? Are they already doing that? Uh, what does their insertion practice look like? Um, you know, what are the different things they're using that are recommended by the different regulatory bodies? Once they're doing all of those other things and their education is up to speed, and we do our, we have education as well, then it's it's more palpable that we're adding on one more thing. So it's that's the that's the world we operate in as we look back at a, a snapshot in time and we get a baseline where they've been doing all of those other things for a certain number of months or a year. And we add in the one more thing. And then we measure it against that. Now, will you ever get somebody say that was 100% the reason that it happened? No, but if you've done that level of setup and partnership conversation with the, the hospital, they'll look at it and realize there was really maybe only one other major factor and we infections were reduced by this amount. So it, adding that into the fray definitely helped us. It didn't hurt us. Yeah. So why wouldn't we keep doing it? So, so John, so I asked earlier about a litmus test. How do you know if a, if a hospital is ready to partner? So by, by going over those other recommended guidelines, the best practice guidelines, and which ones have you already in, implemented? Am I correct? That's another litmus test if they've done some of those other things. It is. And we always start these with a clinical assessment. So we have a, we have a team of clinical education, uh, clinical sales managers, and they will go in prior to, once an account says we're interested, we think we're interested. They'll go in and do a, a pre-assessment and they'll get up on the floors. They'll talk to the nurses and the doctors that are doing the procedures. They'll watch their practices. They'll review their policies. And then we'll come back and make recommendations. And sometimes it's, they're not ready to go. So we'll help them with some of those other things. And again, like I was saying earlier, get them to a place where we know this is a good investment versus this is not a good investment yet. We may, there's been times where we've done the assessment and said, we'll come back in six months. Here's what you should do, but we'll come back in six months. Yeah. So we always do that initial assessment. And during that time, as everybody listening that's in sales knows, you're building a relationship, right? Yeah. You're showing more value than just here's my widget and it costs this much and you can buy some and it's on contract. So we generate a lot of goodwill in that and we help them a lot. Yeah. Has, has your willingness to establish a risk mitigation value-based program, performance-based program, has that been a differentiator for you in the market? Has it been really a, a, a way to say, hey, we're really a partner and, and has it helped you grow your business? It's The answer is yes. It's, it's a slow burn. It's a slow burn. Uh, we are the only one in our space that offers it. The market leader doesn't feel like they need to, which is fine. They don't. I mean, they have most of the market, right? Yeah. And it's, I think right now, the best, the best comment probably from the sales team would be, I use it in conversation, it's a differentiator. And, and a lot of times the account, after they hear the entire story, will say, you know, we don't even need to do that. We think your technology sounds pretty good. Yeah. And some accounts will say, we need to do that. We'd like to try that. 
So it's been one of those tools that the reps and the managers can pull out of their pocket when they feel like they need to have another, another tool. Okay. Uh, we don't lead with it. And there's many times we never even mention it because it's the account. It's just going that well. Yeah. We don't have to bring it up. They buy right. into what we're telling them. They buy into the clinical evidence. So, so John, you have a, I, I went over your, your depths of experience in this space. I mean, it's, it's been significant. So you, you have a feel for the industry, where it's been and where it's going. Do you feel that value-based care? I know risk share was something everyone was talking about. People didn't understand what it meant. Now, do you feel like this is where the industry is moving more and more? Or are we still in that, yeah, people talk about it, but they're still not willing to pull the trigger most of the time? I think, and you can, everybody out there, do some research on the internet. You'll find lots of great articles on this. Uh, it, it is the movement. It's where it's moving. It's going to go this way. There was a, in one of the readiness surveys you can get to online by one of the GPOs, uh, I believe it was 83% of C-level folks said, we're interested in doing these programs. Uh, I think, but I think the reason that they stated they hadn't done it is because nobody's talking to them about them. Shockingly, right? Yeah. So I think that it is going to be, you know, there, it, with every dollar being squeezed out of healthcare, and everything that's going on, especially with what we just all went through in this last year, they're looking for other ways to guarantee uh, their financial and clinical uh, future. That's right. Yes. So, so how about, do you have any, you, you talked all, uh, we, before the meeting today, we, we said, okay, let's talk about some do's and some don'ts. What are some don'ts that, that you've learned? So do not lead with this with supply chain. We talked about that. Yeah. You'll, it's, it's a dead deal. They don't want to hear about it. It costs how much more? No, thanks. Uh, do not overcomplicate it. We started it out in our original document. We put so much in it. Uh, we put three different types of things we could measure outcomes on. Uh, we, it was probably a nine-page document. Um, and just keep it simple. Do not overcomplicate it. Just make sure you put what you need in the, the fewest amount of pages that you need to do it in. Do not always go for your, your biggest customer when you're getting started because you can really screw it up if you haven't learned a few things. Yeah. Uh, you know, go out and get some experience, you know, get some war wounds first and then take it, bring it into your most valuable customers. Okay. You're going to need to understand the, the, where you're going to trip and fall down and it's going to happen a lot. Do not assume that your, uh, the people you're dealing with in the hospital all the way up to the administration level might not, they might not even really understand the impact of your, of what the problem is you're solving. Right. Even though it's, even though it's tracked by the government in our case, they don't get it a lot of times. They're not sure. Shockingly, you would think they would know. They just don't. Um, especially in the world of the, you know, Affordable Care Act, where they're doing the penalties, and, and lots of your folks listening out there have things that are affected by COTI, for example. That's one of the, the areas, right? Um, don't assume that they even understand the Affordable Care Act, of the value-based purchasing uh, impact on their hospital, or even how it works, especially the clinicians. Now, I'm finding the more the administration-level people they're getting it because it's been out for a while, but the clinicians still kind of push off on that. That's not my world. I take care of people. Um, I don't need to worry about that. I'm going to let the people on the carpet level floor, you know, yeah. do that. Um, 
Those are probably the major don'ts. Okay. So the sales process doesn't change. You're still going to your clinician and your user. You're giving them the ammunition when it's appropriate. But you say supply chain really still cares about the cost of the product versus what it's reducing. So who does care? We talked about the, the infection preventivist. We talked about the, um, the chief outcomes. Off no, there was, there was another person. Quality officer. The quality officer. How about uh, the CFO, the COO? In other words, are there, when you're talking value-based contracting risk here, you think it's a fit and you have that demanding clinician that wants the product, had, who, who are the people that really you would say should be getting involved because they're probably a call point that is not typical to right. most sales reps out there. What are those additional call points that these programs bring in? So in particular, I think we've got to be better in finance. Finance cares 100% about the bottom line. And these, these types of programs typically are probably going to affect the overall balance sheet, right? They're going to hit the P&L. And that's what the people in finance get measured on. That's what they're bonused on. Right. They get paid for let's increase the bottom line. Yeah. So if you can get in there and go to a finance individual and and whatever the numbers are, you've done your homework on in the beginning. And we always have an idea of what it's going to look like, even before we put the pencil paper with the account. You get in there and tell them, hey, would it matter to you if I legitimately saved you three hundred thousand dollars of hard cost? They always look back and go, well, of course. Yeah. Of course it is. So I think that we're going to typically find that that's going to be a call point that's going to be more and more important. I'm also seeing recently in the last couple of years that finally the compensation plans for supply chain are beginning to change. They're beginning to link the leadership and supply chain to patient outcomes and not just squeezing every nickel out of the, the cost. Yeah. Because they see... We're, there's a lot of spaces where they're never going to supply cost save and get where they need to get, right? Yeah. To get, to get the value. So they've got to get better patient outcomes. So I'm slowly seeing that that's happening um, where they care and they're getting well, paid on it. Right. So so we'll, we'll play our, our uh, demanding value podcast segment here of, of Ask Me About. So, so your, your suggestion was, hey, Gary, ask me about the uh, supply chain director that, uh, that is compensated directly for value-based care. So I'm asking, tell me about that one. So uh, in meeting with an, unknown, an unnamed system, sure. uh, had the vice president of materials management, one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting, had worked out all the dollars with finance, uh, had the clinical support. Uh, and sat down and showed this uh, particular individual that we were, we were at the time was $385,000 on the low side. Okay. It, up, it was up to close to a million. It's going to be somewhere in between there, but on the low side, even if we just barely pulled anything off, it'd be $385,000. And that, and that savings, John, was based on infection reduction, the cost of an infection and, and treating it in penalties and, and, and it's using their numbers. Yes, using their numbers. And this is what the finance people had determined would drop to the bottom line. Gosh. Um, and so, but to get there, they had to spend an extra $62,000 in supply cost. For your product, because it's more expensive. Because it's more expensive than the one they're using. So he's sitting across from me and we go through the entire conversation, great conversation. He's looking at all the numbers and he said, it, most people will call me Mav once they get to know me. He said, Mav, he goes, I got to be honest. He goes, I can't do this. And I, I kind of sat back in my chair. I was shocked. I said, yeah. how can you not do this? 
He said, I'm just going to be very frank with you because I don't get bonused on what the hospital makes. I get bonused on how much I drop the supply costs in the hospital. Yeah. I'm, my bonus is going to get cut. So I'm spending 62,000 more dollars. Yeah. And I said, I, I said, frankly, thank you for being very honest with yeah. me. <laughs> that's the problem so he we're was, dealing with. That's the problem. So he was a no vote. Now the finance trumped him and what they, and what they did. And here's a, here's a learning lesson I had in that scenario. Finance was able to do some dollar shifting for him. So they said, look, it, that's ridiculous. We understand the situation. They just did a $62,000 shift on his budget. I see. Okay. So he was not, he was not penalized for in what he contributed in saving the hospital almost, you know, ended up being almost $600,000. So many lessons right there. Number one, that's the problem that we're dealing with. That, yes. that is a pervasive problem, but I, I'm thinking, I'm seeing it, it's starting to chip away. More and it more is. supply chain folks are compensated on these value-based agreements, number one. But the fact that you had prior, prior to this meeting engaged finance gave you that other lever to say, hey, let's, let's, let's bring these folks together, right? And now I would imagine, have you run into that problem again and said, hey, maybe we could shift some dollars? Have you sort of used that experience? You know, no one's been that honest with me since then. <laughs> but knowing that has to be what they're thinking, uh, I've, I've made that suggestion in, in later conversations where, where we will just flat admit, now you're going to spend an extra blank to get there. We know that probably has an impact on your, uh, your budget and the ramifications of your budget. Yeah. So, and then we'll share the story. One of the things we've seen happen is you just get a finance, a budget shift on your on your budget from finance because yeah. they're, they're going to approve saving hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. for less than a hundred thousand spend. To me, John, that is the, the, one of the immense values of doing these, these partnerships, these arrangements, because it is a partnership and you're dealing with more people, more call points, frankly, at a higher level that enables you to, to bring in those folks and have that, that kind of an impact. Cause it, the bottom line is this is helping patients. And by you doing that, you're you're enabling patients to have access to these products. That's going to lower infection. It's, it has to happen. Exactly. And I think it, the other thing too in this space, there was in the beginning of my days here, there was a buzz uh, phrase which was zero complications. Right? They wanted to get to zero. Want to get to zero. Want to get to zero. Zero is hard to get to, and it's even harder to stay at. You can get to zero, but it's very hard to stay at zero. Right? Well, along the way, some settling starts to happen and you start to deal with systems that say, well, we don't really have a problem. Well, you, you had 25 of these last year in, in your three hospital system. Yeah, but that's not as bad as some because they get measured against, they get benchmarked. Right. right? And, and I've started to uh, retort that with what happened to wanting to get to zero. And I was in a, I was in a value uh, analysis committee meeting and that came up and the person said, well, we only had blank number of infections. And I said, respectfully, I hope it's not one of our family members. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> you have to be careful about that, but it's the truth. Yeah. It's, it takes yeah. it back to the, the people like, That's true. I know we only have five, but I wouldn't want one of those five to be a parent or a sibling. Right. And I think we have to keep reminding, you know, it, it, it's so difficult. They have such a difficult job. We have to keep reminding them we're here to help you get there. Yeah. And we have some systems that have been able to achieve 
zero and stay at it. And it's hard, but it, they can yeah. do it. So John, the legalese that came up a couple times when you were talking about this, you know, if it's if it's truly a, a risk share value based agreement, risk mitigation, whatever it is, there's there's a contract surrounding it. So yeah. has that been particularly problematic or have you and any do's and don'ts with getting the legal framework outlined and done? Well, obviously, you've got to involve your regulatory and your legal people early, early and often. Um, and obviously, you're going to stick to what's in your IFU. You're not going to you know, you're not going to be able to link things into an outcome-based uh, regime that you can't claim, and we don't do that. Right. Uh, you there, but you have to work with them to figure out ways that you can put it together a program that is incentivizing enough to the account um, without putting yourself in jeopardy. Right. It's it can be done, and I think one of the don'ts is don't get too hung up on that. Just work hard with them. Yeah. They, you've got the right people. They'll figure it out. They'll they'll figure out how to put something down on paper that allows you to do this okay. in a way that is compliant and is not difficult to understand and can be very simple. Yeah. But yeah, we we do. We have two types of contracts, and uh, we do. We have one for a certain set of products and one for another set of products because of that reason. Uh, one set of products can make claims; the other one can't make, so we have to use a different contract. Got it. Now, how about, so you're looking to reduce infection using that, that's a really good example. So what if their patient population changes in, ter in terms of the, the volume of patients? Is it a percent of, of, of admitted patients or is it a raw number that you use? Yep. And the one where we do the tracking of the actual infection, the actual guarantee, it's a number of infections. And the reason we can get away with the number is because, uh, it's not like they have a hundred of these a year. Now there are some, there actually are some systems that have a hundred a year, but it, they're typically going to have a pretty well-defined number of these if they're going to have them. So if they're low, if they're on the low single digit side, they're probably not going to go over like a 20, for example. So it's, it's, you can easily work out and we let that, we let that evolve with the account. So we'll start with, you have X number and we'll guarantee up to X number and we'll reduce to X number. So we work with them to get to the, the median on it and then we work out. Okay. Things. So yeah. you established kind of buckets, a, a bit of a range within, within yeah. the agreement. In our particular space, they do measure actual events. So it's easier to say a certain number versus a percent. Yeah. How do you get the reporting? Who is tracking it? Is it for, do you use the, the government's data? Do you extract from the EMR? Do your sales reps track it? How, how is the tracking done? So all of those things happen. So in the early days of it, when we're approaching an account, it's all public. You can pull the public data. Now that data is aged, right? Right. It's one to two years old. So we're able to at least get an idea and know they've got a problem. Then we get in there and start having the conversation and we will bring up the government data. They know it's out there. So it's, we're not calling their baby ugly. They understand it. And typically it's not accurate to the present day, mm -hmm. right? It's either, it's either worse or it's better. Yeah. Uh, typically it's a little better because if they had a problem, they're really trying to fix it, which also yeah. shows you that thing we talked about, which is they're, they're doing all the other things to bring it down. So they are doing the other suggestions. Obviously they're not using our product yet, but they're probably doing the other things. And then once we develop that relationship with, and it's, 
In our instance, it's usually the infection preventionist. He or she is getting the data. They're, she's having their analysts who go in from the EMR, pull it from the data, pull all the patient charts, figure it out. And they'll know the number that they have going on in the present day. Okay. And then they're also the ones we'll work with to establish the baseline. So we'll either go back a, a certain number of months prior to the start of the review of the, of the technology, or we'll go back to that snapshot last year. We let them pick, doesn't matter. Okay. But it's, they'll, they'll be the ones working with the analysts in the hospital. And so you go in with the government, you end up getting their data if they're good and you know they're ready if they got it, and then you use their data. And then how about once they're using your, your product, is it that same person that, that is just getting it however they get it, whether it's from their EMR or, or the infection preventivist, like everyone has their own way of pulling data and you're working with someone who's, who's on it that can, that can pull the data. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Well, it's typically the same. It's consistent. It's usually the same person or people to pull it. John, has, have you ever worked with like maybe a community-based hospital? You know, they, they're not that um, IT focused and they just can't pull the data. And they say, you know what, can your sales rep um, do the tracking? Can your sales rep follow up a week or a month afterwards, talk to the clinician? Hey, how's that patient doing? And, and kind of old school put, you know, have a form that they fill out and then they're collecting forms and submit it. I mean, that is the most basic way to do it, but has it ever gone to that level? Or if you're doing a risk share, no, it really needs to be officially tracked from the, the hospital themselves. It needs to be officially tracked. You don't want to get to the end of this and them have the feeling that you manipulated something. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that reps manipulate data, but they could have the idea that it could have happened. Sure. Sure. Um, and then it's not only, you know, and it's also complicated by the fact that we can't look at the chart anyway, right? So we actually right. can't physically do a chart review. So where it has happened, the rep may be interviewing the people on the floor and the, the chart, the, the charge nurse or the director of ICU, for example, they'll know she'll, we'll be able to say, Hey, keep track of the infections. They know the three or four they have in the unit yeah. and they'll keep track of that. But yeah. you need the account to if the account's not willing to figure that out, they're probably not ready. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another litmus test. Another, because that is the key. You've got to track the outcomes. You have to have trust at the end of it that it was tracked well and that they believe the numbers. Yeah. Uh, so I would say try to stay away from any account that won't invest the time to actually do the tracking the right way. Yeah. John, do, does Teleflex have a term for this? Because we've bantered around a few terms now value-based contracting, risk-share contracting, risk mitigation, performance-based agreements. Like, is, is there a, a name that you use or even that you would suggest? You know, we've recently been using value-based contracting, uh, and that was influenced by a GPO that we worked with that started calling it that. Yeah. In fact, they developed a program around it. They, they call it value-based contracting. Um, I'd like the performance-based contracting uh, term because it's maybe even a little more, it depends on who you're talking to. If you're probably talking to somebody that's goal-oriented, uh, like a you know numbers person and that kind of thing, or somebody counting something, performance-based seems right. Yeah. If you're talking to a clinician, value-based seems right, but I think you couldn't go wrong with either one of those kind of okay. things. What we definitely got away from is the term risk sharing. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate. Got it. Uh, 
it's risk sharing. That term nomenclature is really used more in the insurance payer environment where you're sharing risk on pay. And it's not applicable, I think, in the device world. Got opinion. it. Got it. So it's not resonating with your customers when you bring up risk care, but value-based is, is resonating. They get it. They know you're trying to do something to generate a value. And that's what the contract will be based upon. It's well, and it could be a lot. It could be the cost. It could be the outcome. It could be yeah. a lot of different things. But so. so John, let's talk about timing of, of engaging the key stakeholders. So you're, you're selling to your clinician or your, your ideal end user, you know, finance needs to get involved or, um, you know, one of the other high level folks that we talked about. So let's use finance as, as an example. Have you, do you go into them simultaneously? Have you ever started with finance? Um, or is it really, it's the clinic, it's the end user, make sure they're demanding. And then like, it's always that way. What, what, what's the timing of this? We've tried a lot of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the reality is you've got to have a clinical champion. Even if, even if you know you finance is bought in, they know the cost, you could, you're, it's not going to happen until you have someone asking for the product. Here, here's why. And, and I know people listening to this will, I know they'll start shaking their head. I promise you. Apathy is king in a lot of places. Yeah. They just don't want to change. Yeah. So even if you have the C-suite, I, I, I think of an example of a large community system in Florida had a significant problem, significant, uh, millions of dollars in, in spend out of their pocket on this problem. We had a, we put together probably one of the finest C-level meetings I've ever put together on these. We had, we had the entire C-suite there, yeah, including the CEO, which is a shocker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we had every director of every major department in the meeting. And we had the, uh, uh, all the quality people, everybody, probably about 15 to 20 people from their side, six on ours, huge meeting went fantastic. CEO says, CEO, we're doing this. Yeah. Figure out how to do it. Yeah. They took it down to the actual clinicians that would be on the floors doing the procedure they fought against that so hard. They did not want to change. They yeah. did not want to learn something new. They did. They had no interest in it and it never started. Wow. And we had a C huge C-suite meeting. And is that an example? You actually started at the C-suite without getting the, the clinicians on board first. And yep. they don't like to be told what to do, right? I actually met, I met the, I believe it was the CMO for that system at a Marcus Evans meeting, which Marcus Evans does the executive meetings. You can go to their different meetings that bring together all of them. Yeah. And the CMO said, we're doing this. You got to come. And that's how that started. So we booked a meeting and went and he pulled together every single person, including the CEO of the hospital. Unreal. Never took off. Clinicians bucked it, fought it, weren't going to do it. To the point where you recognized um, it was not going to get a fair trial. It wouldn't have happened well. Yeah. And uh, never happened. You got to get the clinicians gotta on board Got to have first, the clinical champion. Then you could talk to them. That's right. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. I think we sign off there. I mean, that that's really the key. It is changing things. It is getting better. You can make an impact. It's giving you additional call points. But you still got to sell the product to the end user and yep. then value-based contracting can really have a positive impact. 
Absolutely. It's a slow burn. So if you start doing it, don't give up. We've been slogging away at this for years and yeah. it's worth it. And you're going to change some hearts and minds with it. Not everybody's, but just keep slogging away. It's a slow burn. Awesome. Awesome. John, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. This has been so much fun. You have such a depth of experience on this and, and thank you so much for doing this. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. You got it. So that's a wrap. Wow. John Maverick, thank you so much. You gave us all so much to think about and basically a roadmap to truly partner with your customers and the right customer that makes sense to do a value-based risk-share agreement. So until next time, thanks for listening to the Demanding Value Podcast.